Hey, it's JT. I'm coming to a city near you. And if you would love to have a Bulletproof for BJJ seminar, contact us. Reach out to me at JT at Bulletproof for BJJ.com and let me know. I will be in Europe, the UK, Brazil, United States and Canada after July this year. This is the world tour. This is the opportunity. We'll be doing mobility. We'll be doing strength work. It's the all-encompassing Bulletproof Seminar. So get in contact and it'll be great to meet you guys face-to-face. Better listen very carefully. A good martial artist does not become tense, but ready. Essentially, at this point, the fight is over. So you pretty much flow with the goal. Who is worthy to be trusted with the secret to limitless power? I'm ready. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another Bulletproof for BJJ podcast. I am JT, and with me today, I have a very special guest. His name is Reed Real. Reed is the Performance Nutrition Manager at the UFC Fight Center in Shanghai. For those of you who are not familiar with Reed, he is actually a BJJ black belt and originally a Victorian native, and for a bit of context, my first ever competition role. We'll talk about uh, that later. (laughs) Welcome, Reed. How are you, mate? I'm very good, mate. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be on your podcast, and and thanks for the invite. I'm I'm sitting in my kitchen in my apartment in, in Shanghai, and uh, you caught me at a good time. I'm working from home. Oh, fantastic. Mate, look, such a journey. I mean, I've followed your career over time and always impressed with all the, the good things you're doing. Let's do a really kind of light overview so people can understand where you've come from to be where you are, and then we'll get deep on how it all started for you. You were originally at the AIS doing sports nutrition there for the combat sport. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. Yeah. So I'm a accredited practicing dietitian in Australia, which is like a registered dietitian in the States. And I worked for a bit in corporate health after uni and, and then was able to be awarded a scholarship to do a PhD at the Australian Institute of Sport, which focused on weight cutting in, in Olympic combat sports. There's going to be a lot of people very interested to understand some information around weight cutting, because this is a question we get all the time. Now talk to me, mate, how did you go from being in Australia and doing your thing at the AIS to now working for the UFC and also talk to us about what that's done for your career. Yeah. Yeah. I was very fortunate. Obviously everybody works hard and tries to take advantage of opportunities and and that, that sort of stuff, but we all get lucky when we end up in good situations in life. And, and like I said, I was fortunate enough to get that scholarship to, to do my PhD at the AIS. And normally when you do a PhD through a university, you have to like teach classes, run tutorials and this sort of stuff, as well as do your research. But the way they had set up at the AIS was that the scholarships were funded by universities. But instead of being based at the university, you get based at the AIS in Canberra. So I was in Canberra for like three to four years. And instead of teaching classes or running tutorials, um, they had me work as a dietitian with the combat sport athletes. So I didn't really get paid when I was at the AIS. So they kind of get slave labor out of you. But the benefit is that, you know, I got to complete my PhD with like uh, Olympic level athletes, but also get that experience working with them. And we all know that combat sport athletes are tight asses. So none of these guys would have actually paid, <laughs> right. would have paid for services. So I had to work for free, but I got invaluable experience I wouldn't have got otherwise. And then when I finished my PhD at the AIS, I started to apply for jobs all around the world because I thought, you know, it might be nice to, to work overseas and have a bit of an experience. 
And my first job out of the PhD was actually in Florida, in, in, in the US, working for Gatorade Sports Science Institute. So, so I worked there. The, the role was called a senior scientist. So we conducted research and serviced athletes. But I was working with American pro sports, so like basketball, football, baseball, a bunch of other ones. And so I worked in the US for, for two years with Gatorade. And then the Performance Institute, the UFC Performance Institute, was already operating in Las Vegas. And I met some of those guys there kind of in the US when I was presenting at conferences and things. And then when they opened up Performance Institute in China, because they're trying to get into the Chinese market, uh, they approached me to see if I wanted to do the job. Um, and the thing that kind of set me up for it as well was because I published all those papers during my PhD, they were kind of aware of me because of the, the research that we produced. Um, awesome. And it was really cool for me. Before I even met these guys at the PI in Vegas, they were using the papers that we published as the kind of UFC blueprint for their services that they were using for, for athletes on fight week, a uh, perfect lead in for me. And, uh, and, you know, they approached me and flew me out to China. I, I, I was still working my current job in the US and I, you know, I got sick for, for three days <laughs> and, and I told him I was at home on the couch, but actually you I flew to China. So Australian, so Australian, and- just chuck a sickie and get yeah. another job. Actually, that's kind of un-Australian, but sure you did it. <laughs> So that, that was a bit of a process. And then eventually I um, landed in China in, in, in 2019 and helped set up the, the nutrition department here. Amazing. You had just briefly mentioned it before, but I, I thought it, it, it is worth going back to is obviously China heavily affected with COVID. Mm. Talk to us about how that did or did not affect you. Yeah, so I was really fortunate. So, so I got here in 2019 in March. I guess the pandemic started in like January 2020. But uh, so, so that's right around Chinese New Year, right? And, and that's why the whole thing was a shit show as well, because it's like, I believe Chinese New Year in China is like the largest migration of people in the world. You've got a population of, you know, 1.4 billion or whatever, and everybody's going back to their hometowns to see their family. Um, yeah. so, so the amount of travel is off the hook. And uh, and you've got that while the pandemic is just kicking off. So um. Crazy. So yeah, so, so it's not good timing. But actually, all, all of the foreign staff here, we all left China during Chinese New Year because that's like the Christmas period for you know in, in Australia where everyone kind of pisses off and, and takes their holidays. Yep. So everyone kind of left China because our facility shut down for a couple of weeks because all the athletes went back home. And at that stage, the pandemic like wasn't really anything. There was some some whispers of it. So I remember some of our um, operation staff were saying, "Hey, there's this." There's this virus in Wuhan and uh, maybe it's like SARS or maybe it's nothing, maybe it's something like it was just starting, right? And so I went to Thailand, I went to Chiang Mai um, to do some training and nice. you know, get some sun and whatnot. And I thought I was going there for one week. And so I went there for one week and only packed a bag for a week. And then <laughs> like, and then three days into that, we, you know, there's work emails bouncing around and they're saying, hey, this thing in China is kind of getting, uh, getting more serious. So just stay outside of China and uh, until we figure out what's going on. And long story short, I ended up uh, outside of China for 10 months when it was supposed to be a week. And and, and so I stayed in Thailand for about a month or maybe a little bit longer. And then there was a UFC event in New Zealand. So it was the Dan Hooker and uh, Paul Felder event. So I flew to New Zealand and and worked that event for about a week. Then I went to Vegas. Um, We went to the like main PI in Vegas. I was in Vegas for like two or three weeks. And then I went back to Florida for two or three weeks and check on my old house. And then, uh, interesting, I'll, I'll get to the end of the story soon, but uh, at that stage, America was like the red flag country for China because when I was in the US, the US was just starting to become a shit show. It was like right at the beginning, you know, when right. Trump was like, 
Like, oh, there's only 10 cases. It'll go away. There's only 100 cases. It'll go away. There's only 10,000 cases. It'll go away. Like like that, that was during that time. And so China, everyone wanted to get back to China. And the Chinese government said, if you're in the US, you have to leave the US for two weeks before you come back to China. And I was going to come back to Australia to see my mum. And uh, and then Australia started to go crazy, you know, all the lockdowns and stuff. And so I went, fuck that. I'm not going to Australia. So I went to Bali and I thought I'll sit in Bali for two weeks and um, and then go back to China. And then on day 10 of 14, when I was in Bali, China closed the borders. So then I got stuck in Bali for six months. (laughs) You unlucky son of a gun. It was awesome. Surfing, training. Yeah, it was good. It was real good. And, and Bali was, it was affected, but, you know, I could still train every day. Restaurants were open and that sort of stuff. And that was good. And so I was in Bali for six months and then Abu Dhabi, they had the Fight Island stuff. So they flew me to Fight Island and I was there for about five weeks and then back to China. So by the time I got back to China was like uh, maybe October 2020. And I did two weeks quarantine, like in a, in a proper quarantine hotel in China. They don't fuck around with the quarantine hotels. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and then when I got out of quarantine, I was back to work and Shanghai was basically unaffected. It was like life is normal. You, you got your QR codes you have to scan and they'll ask to check your, your green code and stuff to make sure, like if you've had a contact with the virus, it goes orange or whatever. Uh, but I've never actually seen an orange green code in my life. Everyone's green. And um, basically life's normal. You wear a mask on the subway, you check in when you go to places. But other than that, restaurants and clubs and bars are pumping and training's happening and gyms are fully functioning and so I was basically unaffected by the by the pandemic, except for um, a two weeks quarantine when I got back to China. And to be honest, I've had about forty COVID tests. Um, but other than that, other than that, I'm good. My nose is a bit sore. I was going to say, mate, they they go deep in the nostrils. They get the frontal lobes of the brain when they do that. That's that's incredible story. I had no idea. I was just thinking you were just stuck. Like stuck in some apartment doing solo drills on a grapple dummy or something, <laughs> just pumping out the nutrition information for all the fighters. That's incredible. And I guess within Australia and also like Victoria, you know, both you and I, you're originally from Geelong. Is that right? Uh, no, I lived in Geelong for a bit when I was doing uni, but actually a, a small sleepy town halfway between Melbourne and Ballarat called uh, Bacchus Marsh is, oh, is where I was born. Right, right, right. Moved around Geelong and Western suburbs. Yeah, yeah. When did you actually start BJJ Reed? What year? Like just before I was 21, so like 2006. Okay. Yeah. I remember you being a lot younger when we fought each other. I think it was the Vicks. And I yeah. was, uh, I think I was 25 and Peter DeBean had just said to me, nah, just, just go in the comp, you'll be fine. And like I'd only trained I think like a month or two. And everyone was talking about you because you were like this skinny kid just throwing triangles up on everyone. You're all over everyone. And, uh, mate, I think you beat me 26-0. And you didn't tap me, but you just absolutely schooled me and I was just fighting for my life. I don't remember that actually. Right. You were wearing a skins. You were wearing this like skins shirt, you know, like black with yellow stitching and these like whatever shorts they were and you were just all over me. And they're like, yeah, that's really real. Like, yeah, oh, mate, he's such a gun. Uh, you definitely won that day. And then I, I think I fought another, another match uh, in the gi against uh, Frankie from um, Dominance. And we ended up having like a draw and he beat me by an advantage. It was a terrible day for me. I lost both matches in a terrible way. 
but I always, it always stuck with me just like how good you were. And I, I remember you, in my head, you were like 18 years old. <laughs> I'm like 25 years old <laughs> and this buddy, this kid is kicking my ass. <laughs> and uh, it was very memorable. And then I think the last time we might have fought each other was actually at Brown Belt, I think. I can't remember. I remember you winning. I couldn't sweep you. It was right at the I, end. I, I know there's been a few over the years and I know that in the competitions I, I always – well, not always, but most of the time, probably managed to etch it out. But I know in training, it's a it's a lot more even, and I, I don't know what happens, but you know, there, mate, there, there's sometimes like, things happen. Mate, we're uh, we're both black belts now, and I mean, I'm planning to come to Shanghai and do a bulletproof seminar and kick your ass. No, uh, you you do all right here. They people love paying for these seminars and stuff here. Like CrossFit's super popular, and yoga's fucking off the hook here, and it's like sixty dollars for a single lesson or something here. It's ridiculous. Crazy business. Well, yeah. look, you know, for those of you who don't know, Reed Real is a big, strong human. I think the last time we were in the same weight category was probably 15 years ago when I started jujitsu. Uh, he's a big uh, guy, big, strong guy, always, always been a very well-conditioned human. And that was something I wanted to talk about with you when we, we're going to lean towards some nutrition stuff for you, Reed. Yeah. But you're that's you're the man for that. Like a lot of people who I know through jujitsu and also MMA speak so highly of your your knowledge and how clear you make things. From what I know, you've lifted and you've been consistent with your health and your fitness. At what point did you go right? Nutrition's the thing for me. And then at what point did you go right? I'm this is what I'm doing. You know, flat out, I'm going to do a PhD. So I dropped out of high school. So I didn't even start uni until I was 21, like the same year I started jujitsu. Like like a lot of people just got into it through like lifting weights and, you know, like bodybuilding and, and, and kind of meathead stuff. Um, and I, I wasn't necessarily set 100% on nutrition in the beginning. I just liked it all. So my degree was health science and I did like strength and conditioning, exercise programming, nutrition and uh, and biochemistry. And, you know, I was kind of thinking like, do I do physio? Do I do strength and conditioning, do I do nutrition? Like, and I think what what had me sold on nutrition was number one, I was a fat kid. So it's like getting, you know, un- understanding how, how you can, uh, you know, change your body through nutrition was always appealing. But for some reason, I had this idea in my head that nutrition would be better to fall back on because you can get a job as a clinical dietitian if the sports stuff doesn't work out. But of course, you can do that with physio and, and everything else. But um, yeah, I, I kind of could have gone either way with any of those routes. But for some reason, I, I picked nutrition. I think it was just, you know, out of the all the kind of facets of health and fitness, that was just the one that was maybe a little bit more interesting. And again, maybe because I was like a, a fat kid and got into the bodybuilding, like the idea that you can, um, you know, manipulate your your body weight and body fat and this sort of stuff via nutrition is, is probably what etched it out. And then, so my undergrad was kind of fairly uh, diverse, but then my master's degree was dietetics. And I did that at Deakin University and, and, and that was quite interesting, although most of it's, you know, dealing with diabetes and, and cancer patients and frail old ladies and, and all this sort of stuff. But obviously, you know, we, we train jiu-jitsu when we compete, you start to try and cut weight in stupid ways. And so, so you want to kind of figure it out, what's the better way to do it? So like a lot of guys that end up with uh, nutrition for martial arts, it's from, you know, trial and error and fucking it all up when you were younger yes. and then you figure out there's a better way to do it. And then it I, I was just smarter. fortunate. Yeah, I was just fortunate that the Australian government had that funding available for the PhD scholarship because if it wasn't for that, then, then I wouldn't have done it. But the Australian government has a push for combat sports kind of in the last 10 years because they want to do better at the Olympics because Australia suck at Olympic combat sports. So Sorry, judo boys. Um, <laughs> but, uh, Dan Kelly is just 
wringing his hands at you going, how dare you? I mean, I mean he's the exception, right? He's the exception. But, uh, but yeah, so there was, there was a bit of a push for, for this sort of stuff, for research and, and servicing in, in Olympic combat sports. And so that's kind of what, what sold it for me. Amazing. Let's double click on that, mate. Let's get into that because there's a lot of people listening right now who would like to better understand approaching weight cuts for jiu-jitsu competition. Now, obviously, that can be quite different compared to, say, MMA, where you've got the 24-hour weigh-in. Now, with bigger events like Abu Dhabi Pro Trials and like the ADCC, you get that full day to kind of cut, weigh-in, rehydrate, refuel, all of that. Tell us, when you are approaching jiu-jitsu competition with your advice, now, you don't have to get too specific, but... What do you think is the biggest difference or what do you recommend for, you know, the kind of average blue or white belt out there? They need to cut a couple of kilos for competition and they're weighing in on the day. What are your recommendations? I'll give a little bit of context to the kind of overall question and and then zero in on that. So the first thing that people need to understand, and this is probably fairly obvious for yourself and, and, and for me and other people who are a little bit educated in this area, but for some people it's not obvious. So I'll, I'll kind of lay it out. Like there, there's two parts to the weight loss, right? There's the getting your, your body fat down. So that's like chronic long-term weight loss. And that's the actual like changing mass of your body. And then there's the weight cut part, like the acute weight loss. So this is like playing around with all this stuff that you can do in a matter of hours to days that doesn't really change your body composition. It just changes the number on the scales. So if we think of it as fat loss versus weight cut, because sometimes people confuse it. They think like, oh, I cut 20 kilos over eight weeks. And I would say, well, that's not necessarily a weight cut. I would say you lost 15 kilos of fat and then you cut five kilos in the last week, something like right. that, right? So, so if we're talking about the weight cut part of it, so we'll take the fat loss side out of it. So the, the actual weight cut part, um, acute weight loss, the things that we're trying to manipulate is everybody knows body water is, yep. is a big part of it. Um, the other thing is like stored carbohydrate, so glycogen content, which is also kind of body water, but we can separate it out and say glycogen content. Um, and then the other thing that not a lot of people understand, although hopefully the awareness is is a little bit higher, thanks to myself and guys like Jordan Sullivan and, and other people, the other part is gut content. So in particular, fiber that, that hangs around in your stomach. Most people, if, if you uh, go to the bathroom right now, and, and do a number two, it's actually from like a day or two or even three days ago, you know, it, it can take this long for, for food to pass through your GI tract. So what that means is that you've always got a certain amount of undigested plant matter. Um, Sorry, one second. General- GI is gastrointestinal tract, right? Correct. Yes. Cool. Yep. So, so, so you'll, you'll have some undigested uh, plant matter fiber sitting in your gut that can take it. It depends on the different fibers and, and different people's um, gut motility and all this stuff, but it can take like 24 to 48 to 72 hours. Um, some studies have even said 96 hours, they find residue in the gut, but, but it takes as long for it to pass through. So like a lot of people think I should eat fiber because it makes me go to the toilet and empty my gut. It's like, that's true. But if you're constantly eating fiber, you're always kind of replacing it. So it's like you put something down, it goes out, something else comes on top. Sure. So what I'm getting at is if you just like don't eat any fiber for about three days, you'll shit out everything that's in your stomach and you'll lose like a decent amount of weight depending on how much fiber you, you normally take. So the other way you could do that is by complete starvation. So if you just don't eat for three days or two days, your gut will be empty. Obviously, you're going to feel like crap if you don't eat. The other way you can do it is use like a laxative or a bowel preparation formula. So if people use a laxative, you blast out, empty what's in your stomach, and then you're empty as well. And, uh, but obviously you're not going to feel very good from, from taking laxity. So the smarter way to do it is if you just eliminate all fiber containing foods from your stomach 
for anywhere. Like you, you get most of the benefit in two days, but you'll you'll lose weight kind of three and four days into it. After about four days, it's all gone. And even after about three days, you're probably 95% there. But you, you can lose a significant amount of weight. So like I normally eat a lot of vegetables and and like a lot of guys who are, you know, interested in health and fitness. And, and if you're getting your weight down, if you're trying to get your body fat down, you're probably having like a high fiber diet anyway. So if you remove that fiber for three days, you could lose one to 2% of your body weight um, in a couple of days. And so myself, like if I just, if I just don't eat vegetables for three days, like no, no veg, no salad, no fruit, no whole grain breads or anything, you know, I'll lose two kilos. And so that's for a lot, for a lot of people, if you're just sitting above your weight division, that's the kind of way you do it. And then on top of that, you could sweat a little bit, you know, it's like if you if you sweat, you know, three, four kilos, depending on your body size, like, you know, you're not going to feel great. But if you just like do a warm up before you step on the scales and sweat off half a kilo a kilo, that's quite manageable. And in fact, like doing a warm up is obviously good for your competition prep, just to kind of wrap it all together. So if, if you're an MMA athlete with a 24 hour weigh in, you throw the kitchen sink at it, you don't eat fiber for three or four days, you cut out carbs for a week, you don't drink water for a day, you sit in a sauna for a few hours, you know, get 10% of your body weight off. But if you're a jiu-jitsu athlete, number one, eliminate fiber for three days and then anything else, just sweat a little bit off. Is that what you would refer to as a low residue diet? Is that what you're talking Correct. about? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And, and the benefit of this is, is that you can still have like adequate energy, um, adequate calories, protein, carbohydrates, while still getting your body weight down. And in fact, a lot of people feel better um, because, because you're quite light. You know, and it's like the foods that you eat, white breads, maybe cereals, maybe some, you know, yogurt with a little bit of cornflakes or something on it, things like this. Like it's food that digests really quick. You feel really light. You're right. Like I, I know before a lot of jujitsu comps, my one was if I'm like half a kilo underweight because I've done low residue for like three or four days and then I wake up on, on weighing day and I'm half a kilo underweight or even if I'm right on my weight. It's like, I know I'm going to do a warm up to sweat. So I'm probably going to sweat half a kilo or a kilo. So then I can go and get a coffee and a couple of macarons and, you know, little macarons, you get a couple, <laughs> a couple of hundred, hundred grams of carbohydrates or sorry. How many calories. macarons are you eating, Reed? You, the <laughs> fat kid lurks, mate. Jesus. A couple of hundred grams of carbohydrate, you kid? A couple of hundred calories, sorry. So, so you can have a couple of macarons and a coffee. And, you know, that's probably only like 400 grams if you're having like a 300 mil coffee plus a few macarons, and then you're going to go sweat off a bit and you're still underweight, got a lot of energy. Okay, excellent. So low residue diets. Now, quick question and mate, give this as much or as little detail yep. as you'd like. When I was preparing for fighting in MMA, I did water loading. And I, I mean, I've played with cutting with my weight, like cutting weight since I did Taekwondo when I had to make under 72 kilos. So it's very well practiced for me. I know what I need to do. I know my sodium. I know, you know, I know how my body works. Yeah. You're working with the UFC. You're working with the top level professionals. And obviously yeah. they have their own procedures. Is water loading, like in terms of people really loading up and then cutting their water intake all the way back to just strip everything out, is that uh, being done as a practice? Yeah, it's definitely being done. And some guys go, you know, really extreme with it. Like you might get guys that are fighting, you know, bantamweight, featherweight, so 61, 66 kilos, and they might be doing 10 plus liters a day. So yeah, it's, it's certainly been practiced. And I would say more people do it than don't do it. We actually did during my PhD, we, we did a study on it. So we had two groups and we had one group water load, one group didn't. And we, we controlled the food, the fluid, everything. And then they, they both um, cut fluid on the last day. And on average, it, it seemed to work. 
But what we found was for certain people, it seemed to work quite well. And for other people, it didn't really work at all. So I think it's really a personal preference. And I think like with the athletes that I manage, I don't want them to get to a point where the difference between them making weight and not is whether they're water loaded. Like I don't think you should cut crazy amounts of weight. Although what I think is crazy might be different to, to other people. But I think like for, for an MMA fighter, like 10% of your body weight, like if you're fighting at 70 kilos and if you're 77 kilos one week out, like that's a reasonable amount of weight. That's not going to make you small, but it's not going to kill you to do it. Whereas some people try and do a lot more than that. Yeah. Um, and and look, so, you know, there's some, very, there's some very famous cases, like pretty famous MMA fighters who do cut a lot, like Khabib. I just noticed from like a little bit of inside information from uh, AKA that someone said that he was walking around at 91 kilos at one stage, not that far out from the Connor fight, the very controversial Connor fight. And they, what they fought at 72 kilos. Do you yes, know what I mean? It's, it's- within the mythology, I'm not saying this is necessarily the case, but within the mythology yeah. of even Connor, part of the reason why they said that he wouldn't go back down to 145 was because they took out intravenous rehydration because he was, yeah. he was cutting so hard and really needed that to be able to come back. And now that's yeah. uh, IV rehydration is illegal uh, with the UFC now. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. I would say a lot of it's lack of education as well, because some of these guys that do these crazy weight cuts, they don't necessarily cut, like you do get people that cut huge amounts of weight, but I would say more often than not, and I've seen this, is the guys cut the same amount of weight that we would recommend through like the kind of more evidence-based approach, but they just do it terribly. So it's like you might get two guys that are cutting seven kilos in that last week. One guy does the low-carb, low-residue, low-sodium, and then they wake up the day before weigh-in. They, they were seven kilos at the start of the week. Now they're three and a half. So they're only sweating three and a half kilos. Right. And then the other guy is seven kilos a week out. He doesn't do low residue. He doesn't want to cut his carbs because he likes his potatoes too much. And then the day before weighing, he's still like six kilos above his weight division. So then he's sweating six kilos. So they've both cut the same amount in that last week, but one guy nearly kills himself to do it. And the other guy that does it a lot better. And I've seen that And the same with the rehydration. Like a lot of guys just, you know, there's a lot of um, kind of old school coaches and you want to bring the coaches on board and educate them and all that sort of stuff. And you don't want to, you know. You don't want to alienate um, them. Yeah, alienate them and all that. But, I mean, China's next level, mate. You want to see these coaches here. There's obviously good ones, but in terms of what I was about to say, is there's a lot of kind of old-school Brazilian coaches and, and Russian coaches that I see when they bring their guys to the UFC and they kind of you know do it a really old-school way. And if they're doing it in an old-school way, the guys in China are prehistoric, like with, with some of the practices here. Yeah, just education. This is something myself and, like, Jordan Sullivan, you know, go on about all the time. Like, it's not that you shouldn't cut weight, you should just do it in an appropriate way and understand the individual differences. Like we try and get guys to not sweat more than 5% of their body weight. So, so if we can get them within 5% the day before weighing, that's quite good. Within that, there's like always a bell curve, right? So if the average guy's 5%, some people might be four, some guys might be six or seven. And so you can recognize those individual differences once you work with somebody uh, for a few weight cuts. It, it's, it, it actually blows me away what the human body's capable of. Like I've seen a guy who sweats like eight, nine, 10% of his body weight before every fight. And he does it every time. And I'm like, man, like that's like the, the World Health Organization, you know, clinical definition of you're about to fucking die is like 10% dehydration. And yeah. this guy does it three times per year, 24 hours before he steps into a cage and tries to kill somebody. Like, God, so that's crazy. Human beings vary, yeah. 
It's impressive though, isn't it? I know what you mean by like, it just, it shows you how far people can push themselves. But I guess also with weight cutting, people are aging themselves. Like it's a lot of stress on the body. I want to circle back around to jujitsu, mate, because you would have seen so much in your time. So when did you get your black belt read? I think it was when I was 30. I just got my second strike. So congrats. Thank you, sir. So so, so about six years ago, um, November or December last year, was that 21? So I must've got it like 2015, 2015. Awesome. That's awesome, man. But but I still can't do a leg lock. (laughs) Mate, I can can help you with that. I'm going on a world, I'm going on a world tour later this year. I'll come to Shanghai and I'll leg lock the hell out of you, son. Yeah, they love it. I'll give you that that Lachlan Giles special, that backside 50-50 to inside heel hook. Full admiration of everything you've done. Relating back to jiu-jitsu, because there's still a lot of bro science within jiu-jitsu, and a lot of what we're doing at Bulletproof BJJ is we're just trying to do sensible things. We're not doing anything revolutionary. We're just trying to encourage people, do their stretches, do your mobility for your warm-up. If you get injured, do your rehab, do your lifting, you know, get your sleep get your proper meals in, you know, like what we do in all truth is basic, but it's interesting because within the culture of jujitsu, people are just not doing this stuff. And the poor harder mentality of just, just train like 10 hours a day and, you know, everything else be damned is still very pervasive because they Mm. see very high level people doing it, but steroid use, this is where I see the disconnect. People look at top level competitors and they look, they observe what they do and they're like, but that guy trains eight hours a day. It's like, yeah, but that guy's on enough testosterone to kill Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's why he does it because Brazilian jiu-jitsu is not a professional sport. Drug testing is rare and patchy at best because they just don't put the money into it. And they also don't want, 80% 80% of their top guys popping and then suddenly the sports is a shambles because everyone knows that all the top guys are on gear. Have you seen any common mistakes other than weight cutting? Is there any common misconceptions or mistakes that you've seen within jiu-jitsu culture that you would give advice against or give recommendations to fix? Yeah, it's a hard one. Look, within jiu-jitsu, there's so many kind of subcultures, right? And because you, you get, like jiu-jitsu is a funny sport because you get in other sports, it might be recreational athletes and then elite athletes and that. But jiu-jitsu is one of the weird sports where you get guys and women too, of course. I'm using the word guys. Oh, you chauvinist. You I know, bloody, I know, I know. You white Aussie entitled can, chauvinist. Work, work, but, um, we have lots of women listeners. Thank you, Reid. <laughs> um, there there is more than two genders too, so throw th- th- the rest in there. But, that's um, true. That's true. True. Yeah. So, but but I was going to say it's one of the few sports, or at least maybe the only one that I know, where you get you know recreational people who kind of train like professionals. Yeah, you know what I mean. So so you get the nerdy office worker, the guy who's a who's a lawyer by day, and then rolls four hours every night, seven days a week. Yeah. Um, so, so it's kind of interesting. So in terms of the culture and in terms of like nutrition practices and this sort of stuff, I don't know if there's common mistakes. But one thing that I would say, similar to what you're saying with what you guys do. It's just basic stuff that most people are unaware of. It's nothing revolutionary, but it's just like, you know, like the food pyramid is kind of right, but by and large, most people, it's like, you know, eat your vegetables, get some lean meats, eat your carbohydrates. And if most people did that stuff um, and just stayed away from all the fad 
I, I would say like one of the biggest things actually is is that is just um low carbohydrates like that that's probably fairly um, pervasive that people think that for some reason carbs are not good for your training and 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 this is true in in most combat sports where people tend to think you need to eat like a physique athlete to look like a physique athlete you know they think like oh, I should be cutting carbs super high protein eat like a bodybuilder or or, or like a um yeah like a physique athlete whereas the nutrition needs of a combat sport athlete jiu-jitsu is no exception is more similar to a team sport athlete so you probably need to eat more like a footballer and less like a bodybuilder oh that's um, a great takeaway that's a great point right there you hear that people yeah. you got to eat like a footy player you got to get those <laughs> you, it's, it's almost like tradie diet just get that pie that chocolate big m i was gonna say a big m yeah yeah <laughs> no but i mean in all seriousness i think i mean you're aware of it but you're a humble guy and you are at the top, you are absolutely at the pinnacle of advice for combat sports. You are employed by the UFC to get fighters well-conditioned, eating right and ready for fight day. No one is really seeing behind the curtain better than you. Is there anything you can tell us about what you've witnessed in your evolution from working from the AIS, going to the Gatorade Performance Center in, in the States, working with those athletes, obviously they're soft because they just play basketball and footy and stuff. They're not as hard as combat athletes, you know. Yeah. But, you know, that said, now you're in Shanghai and you're working with these elite athletes. What have you seen, mate, that you can share with us that we could better understand about how these people are preparing themselves for combat? Yeah, I mean, something that, that really shocked me, not shocked me, but like China is a different beast. Like the, the level of awareness around nutrition is like basically zero. And then with other facets of, of training, it's, it's, um, it's a lot further behind the West. So if you look at like some of the top guys in the UFC, and certainly not everyone, like there's certainly guys in the top 10 that are doing poorly. But um, I'll tell you somebody who does it well. Like if you look at Jordan Sullivan, fight dietitian, and his guys at City Kickboxing, like they're on top of it, right? Like they're... They've got it worked out. They're all doing practice weight cuts. They know how much they sweat. They're, you know, adjusting their, their macros for their training load and all this sort of stuff. Um, in, in China, these guys just eat. Like, like they, they, there's basically zero awareness around it. So, like, you might get some guys that are exceptional fighters, um, but they're, they're approaching it like, like if they were working in a factory or if they were... Um, you know, office workers or something like the the level of nutrition knowledge here is 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 not great, um, and and it's a very different culture within the sporting system here. So here, most of our guys come from either the Olympic system, like maybe they were wrestlers or boxers or something, or they come from a, a gym where they live and train, and everything's provided to them by the gym. So they just kind of do what they're told, and so they've got zero kind of awareness about how it all works and why they're doing what they're doing. They just you put the food in front of them and they eat it. That's the kind of way it works here. Um, and you contrast that to some of the the best guys in the US and you know city kickboxing and that and they're and they're right on top of it. So they're um they're really calculating it and, and working it out. But but I will say that like nutrition's um obviously very important. Um, but it's it's just one piece of the puzzle, right? Like like everything's important. Um and 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 with diet, like it doesn't have to be super specific. Like all of our recommendations are kind of educated guesses based on the literature and and, and the science. But if I say, all right. Um, James needs 1.7 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. Okay. So oh, at it, least, mate. At, at least, at least two right? 2.7. There you go. 2.7. So, how like, dare you, like, how we, dare you read real underestimate my protein consumption? 
but 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 this is all just like educated guesses based on what we think is is right. So it's like, do you really need two point seven, or do you need two point five, or do you need three? Like we really don't know. And the human body is an amazing thing. Like we say that, oh, if you don't get this much protein, you're going to lose muscle. I'll tell you, I've seen athletes who have lost, you know, four kilos in a month. So they're obviously in a calorie deficit and their protein's low and their muscle mass doesn't change. So, you know, genetic difference, I'm not saying that that's best case because we should always base our interventions off evidence-based science. But like, you know, there's a lot of variability between humans and your nutrition doesn't have to be spot on. Like I would say get it 80% right 100% 100% of the time or 80% right 90% of the time, that's better than getting it 110% perfect, everything fucking weighed, you know, get, getting it like super specific and then doing it for a month and then stop doing it because you're, 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 you're sick of devoting all this time to it. So, so like the, the consistency the, 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 is a big thing. Consistency and just basics. Like, um, yeah, like eat your five serves of vegetables a day, get roughly you know, 1.5 grams or more protein per kilogram of body weight. Get some carbohydrates before your training. Um, yeah, I, I, I will say, sorry to jump in with this and 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 uh, and um, what's the word like? Uh, Please advertise myself here, but but, but I've got an e- ebook. I've got an ebook that explains all this stuff. Super easy language. Maybe I can. Um, Please uh, like g- give me give me the code. link. Give me the link. Yeah. I'll put the link in the show notes, guys. So if you want to know more about what Reed is talking about, I will put the link to the ebook in the show notes. Yeah, and I'll give a coupon code like a fifty percent off or, or, or something for you guys. But um, twenty oh, percent uh, yeah. off if they're lucky. We got to make you some money, Reed. No, no, no. Yeah, I think, um, mate, it's very generous of you to share your knowledge with uh, with our listeners. And mate, that's 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 a great offer. So we definitely will make sure that's in there. And look. Mate, all your recommendations, I feel like you are a sleeping giant. I know about you because you've kicked my butt too many times for me to not have your name on my blacklist. But uh, (laughs) also, it's always great to see Aussies doing it, you know, doing it big. And I think you're one of those guys. So I'm, I'm always, I'm obviously just stalking you via socials and whatever limited socials you put out there. But then I saw recently, you know, that you are doing a study with combat athletes, is that right? That you were trying to get guys on board? Yeah, I was actually going to mention that one as well. So it's, it's interesting about the nutrition um, knowledge within the jiu-jitsu community because so myself, uh, there's a sleep scientist in Australia, an Irish guy um, called Ian Junikin. He recently got his black belt as well. Um, he, he's old and broken like, like I am. And then another guy called uh, Andy Galpin, who's a researcher um, in, in the US, who's actually been on Rogan a bunch of times. So we're trying to get him to get Rogan to share this link. But we're doing a survey on combat sport athletes' nutrition knowledge um, and also their their sleep and training habits, and just to see how this contrasts to the to the rest of the athletic populations. Because like these nutrition knowledge questionnaires, if you give it to an endurance athlete, like anybody who's a cyclist or runs triathlons, and you say how much carbohydrates do you need, they can tell you. Like they they know this stuff. Yeah. The combat sport yeah. athletes uh, are ranked pretty low down the down the totem pole. Well, mate, you've got tied to a vasa doing shoeys, mate. Like. It's also yeah. how you consume your food, right? Like, I mean, beer out of a bottle, not good for you. Beer out of a shoe is a probiotic. Come on. Tell me I'm wrong. I was going to say it probably helps generate some beneficial bacteria and stuff, <laughs> doesn't it? Get that immune, immune system firing. Mm. But, yeah, so, so if I can also share a link to that survey that people can jump on and do, and you get a free report out of it that tells you about your sleep and your nutrition knowledge to see how dumb you are. <laughs> 
Fantastic. Always love, you know, it's the jujitsu instructor in me that loves to really let someone know how much they do not know. But uh, mate, that's, that's huge. I, it came up in my Instagram feed actually. And I was like, oh, Reed, real. This guy, he's everywhere. I wanted to just circle back around to that idea you were talking about. Is it, you said it was Sullivan? Jordan, Jordan. Jordan, Jordan Sullivan. At, uh, yeah. And he's working with City Kickboxing. Oh, I had recently interviewed Kevin Jose, who trains at City Kickboxing, uh, who had trained at Absolute MMA. I, I trained with yeah. him for a period of time. He's one of their up and coming guys. His nutrition's super on point. You said practice weight cuts as part of their training. I know roughly how much food I need to reduce, how much kind of cardio I need to do, how much sweating I need to do. You know, I, I know how easy it is for me to lose weight. Whereas someone who's never done it before, and we've got plenty of people listening to this who's, who've never done a weight cut, don't really understand how it works. And obviously the low residue diet thing, that's fantastic. That's great information. Within uh, wrestling in America, those guys are cutting weight every single weekend because they have comps every weekend. So literally weight cut is a week in, week out kind of thing and they get very good at it. Mm. Would you recommend that people have a try at this before doing it if they're interested or they think it's important for them to cut weight? Would you say that they should maybe have a practice of the low residue diet and do the weight cut thing before they actually have to do it? For sure, yeah. I mean, certainly I've got people to, to, to do a low-residue diet for the first time at an actual competition. The low-residue diet is like the, the least harmful, least risky version of, of any of the weight-cut components. So, like, you might not want to practice, particularly if you're an MMA fighter or whatever, but if we're talking jiu-jitsu, like, you probably might not want to practice all of the combined strategies together and do an actual weight-cut. For a jiu-jitsu fighter, it's it's not that bad because we're not cutting a whole lot. But certainly an MMA fighter, you don't want to drop seven kilos in a week just to see if you can. But you can practice the individual components of it. So, you know, you can like do a low residue diet for three days, monitor how much weight you drop off, um, weigh yourself before and after training without drinking fluid. So you get an idea about how much you're sweating during a typical training session, even like back off the fluid. Like if you normally drink three or four liters of water a day, cut it down to one and just see what you wake up the next day. Just so, so you have a bit of an idea in your head about what to expect. Th- these are just ways to kind of get, get an idea um, around how to kind of what, what tools you've got available and, and how much you can expect to lose from using these, these various methods. Amazing. All of that information is incredibly helpful. Based off your experience, all your training, what you do personally, and then obviously you're seeing a lot of stuff at the highest level. What do you feel would be the three most important things a BJJ athlete could do in terms of their weight management? Because a lot of people are always asking, oh, you know, how do I put on muscle or how do I lose body fat? And these are all just very prototypical questions that people would ask in any gym, not jujitsu. You know, being a personal trainer for many years myself, the first thing guys ask, how do I put on muscle? And, and I'm not being, this is not being stereotypical. This is literally what would happen. Women would come in and go, how do I get my body leaner? You know, mm. and guys and girls would ask similar questions around these things. But if we think about the jujitsu community, what would be your three best recommendations for people to start doing or stop doing relevant to their eating habits? Yeah. So in terms of actual, I was going to say like educate yourself. Like, like, like that's obviously a, all right, but if we're going to talk about like three actual nutrition habits, like one is just like consistency, like, you know, tr- try and do, do the right thing most of the time. I don't know if we want to talk about like drinking in that because obviously like 
you don't want to be partying and everything. But but really, it's like this. It's basically like this. And it depends Western versus Chinese athlete. That's another one. Yeah. Well, I would say we, we only have a very small percentage of the listeners in, in Asia. We're speaking to Australians, Americans, people in the UK, our friends in Europe, and we have one or two friends in South America tuning in. Yeah. So let's say this. Are the, are the people got any nutrition education? Do they understand what calories are or not? Can I use these terms? I, I think there is a, a small amount of awareness around calories. Uh, we've done yeah. some talking about macros. Um, so you just put it down, mate, and then I think you put it in whatever terms you like, and then it's on people to decipher it, uh, Google some terms. <laughs> got it, got it, got it. And, and, and then go download your ebook. The science brain is, is getting too caught up on the, on the finicky details here. All right, get your energy intake correct, whether that's you need more or less or you're adequate. Energy intake, number one. Number two, get adequate protein. Again, some people already have too much, so they can drop it back. Some people don't get enough. they got to have more. And uh, number three, eat more vegetables. Appropriate energy, appropriate protein, eat more vegetables. That's pretty good. Right. That's perfect. And uh, if people wanted to reach you, Reid, um, obviously you're already a busy bloke. How can people reach you? Do you want people to reach you? How can they follow what you're doing uh, with your great work over there in Shanghai? I've been trying to do more Instagram lately um because i think it's a good thing but it doesn't really help me my career but i know everybody does it and i kind of think i should do it so no, I kind do, of try do it do for it, the people read you're not doing it for I'm you so lazy. <laughs> but, uh, yeah i mean instagram is probably the best one or um if they and want what, to follow the research you can go on yeah just my name read real just one word read real R-E-I-D. real is r-e-a-l-e so it's r-e-i-d r-e-a-l-e that's right. And, and if you're interested in the science side of it, if you go on Google Scholar and type in my name, um, you can you can find all the research. Oh, mate, on, just Google me. Well. Don't worry about my jiu-jitsu black belt. Just Google Read Real. <laughs> You'll know what it's about. <laughs> mate, fantastic. Thank you so much. You've been an amazing guest. I know that there's going to be a flood of questions and we might even have to do a part two based off what people come back to us with. But, um, yeah, that, 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 that could be a good one, actually, because like get, get an idea of what the questions and what the common problems are, because I, um, you know, as, as you can tell, I might need direction with the questions because I keep thinking of all the caveats and the ifs and buts and, and this sort of stuff. So so that might be good. No, I think the thing is, it's it's that combination of being a very smart bloke and then also being humble. You're the boss. Just tell them. You know, you don't have to think too hard. People want to hear what you have to say, and we will definitely find another opportunity to make that happen before we go please just say something to your listeners and also yourself and this is to to pump your um your, your wings a little bit like all this mobility stuff and everything that you're doing is is really awesome like i've unfortunately been one of the victims of not doing this stuff and uh like i always did heaps of strength training trained jujitsu like a fucking idiot just all day every day and i uh, was doing my hill sprints and doing all this stuff and every now and then would have a stretch but you know, stretching so boring and, and life's too short to stretch and, <laughs> and all this. And, and man, after, after 16 years of jujitsu, my body's a bit worse for wear. And uh, I had, I had a few bad injuries. I had a torn pec when I was a blue belt. I remember a, that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and an LCL when I was a, a brown belt, but, but they're not, they weren't too bad. Like I come back from them, but the fucking spine, man, like I've had ongoing like spine problems for probably 10 years, but you know, you just train through them and they're kind of all right. But but in the last two years, 
It's all come to bite me in the ass. And I had, when I was in Bali, actually, I woke up every day with like numb down my left arm. Oh, God. Um, and, and, and I just woke up and then we'll go to training, take me 45 minutes to warm up. And then I was good and I, I just trained through it. But but recently I, I had, um last year, I had a, a bad disc protrusion in my C6, C7. And, uh, and I tried the rehab route. I had two cortisone injections and was doing the rehab. And then 12 weeks later, it happened again. So I went under the knife and, and had a, um, had a had a vertebral fusion. I don't know if you can see the scar oh, on the you can. on the camera, mate. Yeah, that's but, savage. But so, so they took that out and put some screws in it, and that stopped that problem. But now my thoracic spine's all fucked up as well. So I'm doing like a lot of thoracic mobility stuff and uh, getting some some mobilization on it every day from the physios at work, and and um, and I'm still rolling a bit. Like since the surgery, I had to have like six months off, but I'm back. But um, yeah, look after your spines, mate, and thoracic mobility and, you know, counteracting all that spinal flexion shit flexion. that you do when you're playing guard and it's um it, it comes to bite you in the ass and you can be strong on the deadlifts and, and everything else, but, like, that that stuff's really important and, and I wish I wish I could go back in time and tell myself <laughs> to, to, to just, like, don't worry about those last two rounds of rolling, just go and do some, some mobility stuff for the last 10 minutes. It's so simple, but yeah. it's so fucking boring. When you go to do it, like, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't feel as it. good as choking someone out, mate. It's not, it's the ego, no. it's the fun. But uh, mate, that's the voice of experience right there. You've got a guy who who knows, and he's letting you know. So uh, thank you for saying that, Reed. That's sincere. That's coming from a real, real place. But uh, mate, much love to you, man. Much respect. Um, huge fan of yours, and I'll make sure that everything we've talked about today, in terms of your ebook. Uh, the research you're doing, uh, we'll put that in the links in the show notes and we'll make sure we get people onto the good info. My guy, Reed Real. Hey, hey, one other one. I'll I'll put another link up. There's the the UFCPI have a a journal. Um, UFCPI journal volume two, which is all free information. It's like fucking 700 pages or something, which is training, nutrition, psychology, fucking training, monitoring, everything. So I'll send you that link as well. That's got some good info. Sounds amazing. My man, thank you very much. Appreciate you. And for all of you guys out there listening, chase this guy up. Send him heaps of DMs on Instagram so he has to, has to engage with social media because he's got a wealth of knowledge and he needs to share it with uh, all of us uh, tight-ass jiu-jitsu folk. uh, Thanks, brother. Appreciate you. Thank you so much. My pleasure.